Hello, and welcome to the Rules of the Game podcast, where it is my job to discuss and compare democratic institutions. With John Matsusaka, I discuss direct democracy, based on his latest book, Let the People Rule, how direct democracy can meet the populist challenge, that he published with the Princeton University Press in 2020. Many people feel disconnected from politics. Direct democracy is a powerful democratic institution that can reconnect people with political processes and give them actual political power. But it has to be used with great care. Together we discuss the possibilities and pitfalls of direct democracy based on his extensive research. John provides insights and opinions on direct democracy in the US and in general. The book indeed provides not only a great overview of the historic origins of direct democracy in the US, but also suggestions to implement direct democracy at the federal level. Interestingly, the United States is one of the very few countries that never had a popular vote at the national level. John suggests starting with advisory votes and hence to start a process of small steps to implement direct democracy at the federal level. Direct democracy is definitely here to stay. The question is how to use it in the best possible way rather than to cancel it as populist. Technology will bring another boost to direct democracy, carrying with it a lot of risks, but also great opportunities. So the earlier we get to grips with this institution, the better for our societies. John Matsusaka is Charles F. Sexton Chair in American Enterprise, Professor of Finance and Business Economics and the Executive Director of the Initiative and Referendum Institute. An economist by training, he works on topics related to political economy, direct democracy, corporate finance and corporate governance. His article, Ballot Order Effects in Direct Democracy Elections, received the Duncan Black Prize for Best Paper in Public Choice. He also provides commentary for media outlets including ABC News, CNN, Fox News, NPR, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times and the Washington Post. I am your host, Stefan Kiburz, and this is the 31st episode of the Rules of the Game podcast. I am a political economist with a PhD in economics from the University of Bern in Switzerland, and I previously held positions at the London School of Economics and Political Science and the Center for Global Development. You find a full transcript of this episode on my website, rulesofthegame.blog. I am always curious to hear your opinion, so just send me an email to stefan.keywords at gmail.com. And please leave a review and share this episode with friends and colleagues. If you find my discussions interesting and you'd like to support my work, consider buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com and you'll find the link to it on my website rulesofthegame.blog. Now, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with John Matsuzaka. John Matsuzaka, welcome to the Rules of the Game podcast. I'm very happy to have you on the show. Delighted to be here. So, as always, my first question is, what is your first memory of democracy? 
Well, you know, that's a funny question, actually, because I don't have a first memory. That's a question like asking me, what's my first memory of blue sky? It was always there. That, that was just what it was. What's first memory of anything? It was always there. And maybe it's just a little bit of background. I grew up in the Seattle area, state of Washington. It was a very democratic area. It was generally clean, so there weren't a lot of machine politicians there or something. So it wasn't that people ever really kind of talked about it. It was just presumed that we always elected people and we always voted on laws. So it's interesting. My, my more formative memories are instances of non-democracy, strangely enough. And the one I'm thinking your question made me think about was, you know, I grew up in this very democratic state and city where we voted on everything. And I went to graduate school in Chicago and I was walking through the stacks of the library one day doing some research back when people actually, you know, looked at the actual books on the shelves. And I was looking for one thing and right next to it, I pulled another thing off the shelf. And it was this report from the state of New York about direct democracy from the 1970s or something like that. And they were, they were deciding whether they should have direct democracy in New York, which they don't. And I was started flipping through it. And it was all about why the people shouldn't be trusted and why it would ruin democracy in the state of New York if they let people vote on issues. And this was actually remarkable for me. This was one of my uh, more formative memories because I hadn't before thought that people out there would argue in this country, the United States, that people would argue, oh, democracy is a bad thing. We shouldn't let people vote. This is dangerous. So I answered your question in reverse, actually. But in some sense, some of my formative memories were just thinking about cases where people were challenging and didn't think democracy we should we should be using. Mm, that's very interesting because I think trust is a very important topic, right? Especially in these days in democracy and it goes both ways, right? Like the trust in the people to make uh, good decisions and uh, maybe we, we can come back to that point, but also the, the trust in the institutions. You have written the book, Let the People Rule, and you have written it during the Trump presidency, but already before you have done a lot of uh, research on, on direct democracy. Can you maybe give us some motivation for you to, to write the book and uh, a quick outline? What are kind of the main, main issues in the book? You know, it was published in 2020, but as you said, I actually started writing it before, actually before Trump came in. And before Brexit, but in, in a ways those were those were perfect because those were exactly kind of crystallized all the things my book was about. But the book, the key idea of the book is that a lot of Western democracies, particularly the United States, which is you know where where I am and what most of the book is about, but not just about the United States. Western democracies are under a lot of stress right now. And you just mentioned trust. There's a disturbing lack of confidence that democratic institutions are really representing the people in some sense. And this is not just a feeling we have now. This is something we can see in opinion surveys that have going back 70 years in the United States. And there's just been this gradual, slow chipping away at basic confidence and belief in the basic fairness of democratic institutions. So what the book is about is to say, well, why is this happening? Why, why are people, again, over a long period of time, this is not Trump, this is not just some brand new thing, but over, over decades, why are people losing confidence in the representativeness of their institutions? And once we understand that, what can we do about it? Just to give a, a really quick story of, of what the argument is, there are a lot of, obviously, there's a lot of work that's been done. A lot of people have argued about why people are, are so unhappy these, these days. I'm a little bit contrarian in that um, there's a couple of views out there. 
saying, well, people don't like globalization. People don't like the way the economic base is changing. And so, you know, blue collar workers don't have jobs anymore and they're frustrated about that. Or people don't like immigrants coming to their communities. So there's a lot of a lot of pointing at things which have happened in the last 10 years or so. But if you really look at the opinion polls, it's really clear that whatever has been going on has been going on, you know, at least since the 1950s going on a long time. So you can't really point to really recent things. What the really recent things which are real are really, um, they're kind of pricking uh, or they're pricking a sore that's already been festering a bit. And and what I what I argue in the book and try to demonstrate with a lot of a lot of evidence, some statistical, some some historical, but what's happened across Western democracies is they've really changed the nature of the way they govern. Um, from the way they used to a long time ago to the way they do now. And the really most fundamental change is that most laws in most advanced democracies right now are not made by elected officials. They're made by, uh, let's call them bureaucrats. That's a pejorative term, but I don't, I don't mean it that way. I just mean descriptively, you know, um, non-elected experts in agencies. And just most laws, in fact, the overwhelming preponderance of effective laws are made by these unelected officials now. And there's a good reason we did that, and that's good for us that we're using experts in our in our government decisions now. But the unanticipated and unexpected side effect of that is we've decoupled a lot of lawmaking from the people. And I suggest that that's, at some sense, it's a root of why people feel a loss of control, because they know how to call up their local elected official and complain. They know how to kick them out of office if they're not getting what they want, but they don't know how to deal with some bureaucrat deeply embedded in in some agency. They don't know how to reach out to them, how to talk to them, how to persuade them. They don't know how to change them. And so I suggest that a lot of our discontents can be root. They're ultimately coming down to feelings of loss of control and the, the, the notion that some shadowy group is running is running the system. But I suggest that's, that's really coming a lot out of the fact that there has been a loss of control. And we shouldn't dismiss these kind of populist sentiments and say, oh, these people are just scapegoating because they don't like living in in the 21st century. I think there's a real thing going on in there that ordinary people don't know how to control the kind of governments we have right right now. So so that's the basic analysis of the problem. And then the book goes on to suggest that part of the solution is is to give the people more control through direct direct democracy. So I won't say any more on that now because I know know we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but it, it goes on to lay out how we might do that. So I totally agree with the notion of uh, control and that people want control. They feel they lost some of the control, probably also, as you mentioned in the book, through globalization, technologies, etc., etc. But I think also um, important to mention here is that representative democracy is, is one type of democracy, and then we have direct democracy. And we probably agree that in, in the best sense, they would complement each other. And uh, most countries use representative democracies and have developed those. But obviously also direct democratic tools can be a great instrument to to have a check on, on representative democracies. And also the US has actually developed the representative and the direct democracies over time. Can you elaborate a bit historically in the US how that discussion around uh, direct democracy evolved and what were the key developments? Also, uh, you mentioned the, the important progressive era when, when actually the, the discussion around direct democracy was quite intense, but died down in the first half of, of the 20th century. What, what are kind of historically the, the roots and also the populist roots of uh, direct democracy? 
The U.S. is somewhat schizophrenic in its approach to, to direct democracy. And maybe I should just define terms. When I mean representative democracy, I mean what I think most people think is that ordinary voters go and pick people and those people they pick go make the laws. It's your it's your it's your senator, it's your president, it's your it's your MP or something like that. That's representative democracy. When I talk about direct democracy, I mean the people voting on the laws directly themselves. So Brexit would be an example of direct democracy in, in my use of the term or all the different initiatives that we see in California. So when I say the U.S. is schizophrenic, it's because obviously the U.S. is, a, is a, one of the world's pioneers in, in, in democracy. And the U.S. has an incredibly rich history of using direct democracy at the state and local level, at the subnational level. So you can find even one state, even when the country was being formed, when the constitution was being adopted state by state, one state actually held a referendum to decide whether the state should go in. So this idea of voters actually voting on the on the core laws goes back from literally to the very beginning of the country. And it's been used throughout the country at all levels for all this time. The schizophrenic part is that the U.S. has zero direct democracy at the national level or, or the federal level, whatever whatever you want to call it. And that puts us in a very odd situation where we are one of maybe three or maybe four uh, democracies in the world now that have never had a national vote on an issue. And, and that's actually part of a big part of our, our problem, I, I would argue, is that all other countries routinely, not every day, but they routinely imagine in their democratic toolkit that they can ask the voters their opinion on an issue if they need to. Uh, Americans don't even think of that as, as a possibility in, in their mindset. Th there's different kinds of direct democracy, and sometimes people get confused when they talk about it because they blur the different things in. The, the one that sometimes people mean is the initiative process, and that's a very famous one in California where in the initiative process, the voters themselves can come up with the law that they want to vote on. Some citizen group writes up a proposed law, you know, I want to cut taxes, or I want to legalize marijuana, or I want to ban abortion, or I want to allow abortion, whatever it is. They come up with an idea, and if they can collect enough signatures, it goes to the ballot, and then the citizens themselves can approve it or not. So that's a particular type of direct democracy, but sometimes I think people think it's the only type, and it's not. Uh, there's a whole nother type where the voters don't come up with the idea, but the politicians do. Um, so Brexit is, is, is an example of that type. And then there's, there's kind of a third type, which is the voters don't come up with it. The politicians don't come up with it. It's just required if the politicians want to take an action. So an example would be in, in say, California, if the state wants to borrow money, the politicians can propose it, but the voters have to approve it. Or in Switzerland, in many uh, cantons, the if the government wants to spend a, a new spending program, they, they just automatically have, have to go to the voters. So that's a third kind. So I just want to make sure that we, you know, when people think about this, is that it's not just this, this super kind of supercharged thing of the initiative that we're talking about here, um, where those citizens come up with the laws themselves. But there's also other forms where the there's automatic triggers for, for tax increases or the government uses it and calls a vote. The key thing is the people actually getting to vote on the laws. Yeah, exactly. And I also feel that these two instruments, like the initiative and the referendum, at least from a Swiss perspective, have been used very successfully. And also we, we can really mention that the people are actually that are using those instruments are, are very much in, in favor of the instruments. And also you mentioned in the book that in a 2017 study, like two thirds of people see direct democracy as, as, a, as a legitimate or a, a useful tool and they would like to use direct democracy. Also, you say a majority in all states actually would favor 
direct democracy. So why do you think that schizophrenia that you said emerged in the US that you have in some states so much direct democracy? Some people even say maybe it's too much um, that people have to vote too many times. But then at the national level, there is nothing at all. Where, where does that come from, that, that this discrepancy? Before I, I answer that, you, you said something, and I just want to make sure that, that, um, that it's clear what that is. You talked about polling data, and I want to make sure it's clear because I think it's just, it's amazing. That, but, but there's, I think it was YouGov, perhaps, that went out and did surveys of something like 30 countries across the world. And this is a, on all continents, and some of them are democracies, some are not. I think Vietnam was in there, you know, there, Egypt, perhaps. But essentially, everywhere, every country in the world they went into, there was a majority that said, Uh, do you think the people ought to vote on important national issues? And I believe it was every country in the world, there was a majority and it, it hovered in most countries. It was about two thirds or more of the people said, yes, we sh the people should vote on issues. That's just remarkable that it's such a common, it's, it's almost like baked into the human nature. People think they ought to vote on things that affect their, their lives. So I, I just wanted to uh, underscore that. And that gets to the, of course, the problem that's especially true in the United States, but, but we don't ever get a vote on anything here at the national level. So, so why is that? Well, it basically has to do with the fact that we're, we're a victim of our own ancientness in some sense. So, so the United States became a democracy back in the time when democracy in general was a weird thing. If you looked around the world, there was kings everywhere, right? This is, we're talking the late, the late, late 1700s. And the notion that, oh, you're going to let people actually choose their rulers, that, that's, that's not going to work. That, you, you guys are insane. The founders pushed the envelope quite far and said, we're going to try this deal and we're going to actually pick our rulers. You guys have all these kings and hereditary stuff or whatever you're doing. We're going to actually let people pick our own rulers. And people said, well, you know, this is crazy. It's going to fail. And it, and it worked, nevertheless. But the thing is that the idea of, think, of letting people actually vote on laws, they were already so radical. It would have been, it's kind of unimaginable to think they would have even considered that, that idea at the time. So they did something that was pretty radical for 1787. The problem is, as the time went by and we realized, oh, you know, people actually can govern themselves. It's actually, they can choose their own leaders. As that happened, other places around the world started to become, they, they took the ball and they kept, they kept running, to use a, a, an analogy, and they started to innovate and use more and more direct democracy. But it's almost impossible to amend the, the U.S. Constitution. So it would take a constitutional amendment to actually do something high-powered like an initiative, And, uh, and so, first of all, it, it's really hard to bring in those legal structures. The other thing is that the country's a little bit of a victim of its own success. So I think people reasonably say, hey, this has worked pretty good. Why do we need to change it? And so there's a little bit of, of that deeply conservative attitude that says, you know, we're the first ones. We, we, we show people how to do it. Let's just keep doing it. And, and there's a, you know, there's a point to that thinking, but there's a very dangerous point to that logic too, where people who stick too much to that, I think are being a little bit uh, unhistorical. Because if you look at the history of US democracy, it actually evolves a lot. The early form that we used is nowhere near like what we do today. And I could just point to obvious things like women voting, blacks voting, blacks being free. Um, you know, when we first started, governors weren't elected, they were appointed. Senators weren't elected, they were appointed, we elect those. So we've, we've changed our democracy in a whole bunch of ways. So some of the people who say, well, you know, we shouldn't touch the system because it's worked so good for us. They're a bit, they're a bit missing the point that one of the reasons this works so good for us is because we keep touching it, we keep fixing it, we keep improving it. 
But we're a bit stagnant now, I think, in, in our institutions have become locked in. If you tried to measure change in American political institutions, I, I don't know exactly how you do that, but I, I'm pretty sure across a lot of metrics, you'd see that we haven't, we've been fairly static uh, for a while now. Coming back uh, closer to, to the book, so what is kind of your vision or how do you see direct democracy implemented in a, in a different way in the US or how would you see a, a path forward? The main thing I suggest in the book is that we've got this problem right now where, where the voters are feeling a bit disconnected, that they don't have control over the laws. So... There's no magic bullet. There's no secret that's going to make it all go away. It isn't so simple. It's going to take a whole bunch of different things. If we just take the United States, you mentioned some. We have a bunch of creaky institutions. The Electoral College is weird, okay? This weird thing where the voters in the states pick other people to go pick the president. Nobody would design a democracy like that now. That's a vestige of 250 years ago. This strange thing where we have senators, two senators from every state, even giant states have two and tiny states have two. Nobody would design that either. So we have a bunch of creaky things, but I'm not, I'm not really about that, although those are important. What I suggest is one of the things we should think about that we could get some mileage from is to actually let people vote more on the laws that are actually coming before them. And in the United States, particularly, let them vote on some national laws. And that would solve a whole bunch of problems, I believe. It would first make people feel that they do have more control because they would. I believe it would also reduce some of the polarization that is creating great uh, stress in, in our political system right now, because the polarization is, what it comes down to is parties moving to extremes, to really unreasonable extremes, in, in my opinion, in most cases, and really not representing the American public. If you look at opinion surveys on almost any issue, the American public is generally approximately centrist. For example, and I've written a bunch of op-eds about this recently, but take the issue of abortion. There is very few Americans that want to have an outright ban on abortion. At the same time, there are very few Americans who want to have abortion be allowed unconditionally. The huge majority of Americans want to have it allowed in the beginning, but restricted to some degree once the, once the fetus becomes viable. So the great majority of Americans are on the middle on this issue. The parties and the politicians have staked out super extreme positions where they want to go to they want to go to one of these two things. And that makes our, our entire rhetoric corrosive and, and sort of empty as, as some sense. And it's not just that issue. It's that it's immigration. It's it's you, you can name all the issues. The virtue of voting on issues is that it would allow the American public to force a little more maturity into the discussions and things like compromise and moving to the center would come to the fore. And the American public would say, well, we actually want some centrist policies here. We're going to show you this. I believe that would, by a trickle-down approach, make some of the politicians realize, okay, I can actually go in this direction because I suspect some of them might want to, but they think they can't. They can say, well, look, I'm just going where the American public is going and they want compromise. So I think it would provide cover for a lot of politicians to then move not to the ideal center, but to move off the kind of crazy extremes that we're seeing on the left and the right 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 now. So, again, I don't want to suggest that that would be a panacea for all the problems, but I think it would it would be a step in the right direction. It would heal some things. Uh, I'd like to see go in small steps. So I guess as an American, I am 
a conservative too. I don't want to, I don't want to do crazy experiments on a structure that's worked well. I want to go in small steps and see how they work. I think a very easy small step for the U.S. is that the Congress could call an advisory vote on an issue of the day. For example, I suggest in my book, we argue a lot about immigration, and there's kind of two extreme positions. One is, you know, let's build a wall and seal off the borders. Another is, well, you know, we have a lot of people illegally in the country here. Let's find a way to make them legal and so that they can coexist here. Most Americans want to do some version of both. So why not take a vote? Give people the choices. Say, you know what? You guys want to seal off the borders? Do you guys want to kind of keep it almost open and legalize these people? Or do you guys want to do something in the middle? You could do an advisory vote. So if something really bad happens, you're not stuck with that at, at this point. And you don't have to amend the Constitution to do an advisory vote. The Congress could just call it under its lawmaking powers. And you could try this out. And the American people could say, hey, do we like this or not? Um, the elites could say, you know, does this seem like it'd be crazy or not? And people could see it. I believe that when people try it, they will say, oh, actually, good idea. And they would want to do more of it. And we'd learn. We, we would also learn, you know, there actually is this, there's certain ways you want to do it that don't work. Brexit, in my book, is an example of that. A good idea to take a vote. Absolutely. It's a big decision. Why not let the people have, have their say on this? But the way it's designed is not good. Right. And so you learn that by doing it. So I would say for the same thing, let's let's do some small steps in the U.S., take some tries, see how it works, eke it out. If people hate it, then, OK, we're done. We tried it. We'll move on to something else. I believe people will like it and then we can we can expand it out. I think so, too, that the, the institutional design is really important. You mentioned the Brexit vote, which I think also was, was not a, a good example of, of direct democracy. And also I described that in a blog post actually I've written on principles of direct democracy. And the way forward of, of small steps and introducing new institutions uh, one at a time is actually a very uh, solid way of developing institutions. Also, if I compare it to the case of Switzerland, where you know initially in the first constitution there was an initiative process foreseen as a, an overall uh, reform of the constitution, like a very, actually a very big step, but it wasn't that useful for the people because um, people wanted to have like small changes in, in the constitution, for example, or ask for small changes. And then also the referendum, I think, is even the more important instrument because the people have a veto right when it comes to, to legislation. And I think that is often forgotten that the direct democracy can be a veto uh, with regards to legislation that is approved in, the, in parliament. And also this veto right actually in Switzerland is interesting because it makes politicians think about a possible referendum. And so they already include those threats to their legislation in the process. And uh, I think that's a very important element of, of direct democracy. Switzerland is, is such a great example. I spend a lot of time talking to American audiences because this is where I am and, and, and part of my target. But um, Switzerland is such a great example to bring up. And uh, Americans are very proud of their country, but they don't look outside the borders maybe quite as much as they could. And so I'm often at talks and somebody will trot out some quote from one of the founders and they'll say something like, well, direct democracy has always resulted in anarchy and chaos. And, and, they'll, and they'll pull out these quotes. And, and I'll say, well, have you guys been to Switzerland? Because it doesn't look like an, a chaotic place to me, mm. right? I mean, <laughs> it looks perfectly free, prosperous society. So, so I, think, I think Switzerland is a great example. It's also really interesting because it, there's 
initiatives and referendums and everything at the national level, at the Canton level, which is state for U.S. audiences, at the local level. W one thing I believe that in the U.S. it's not just the the federal government where we can do more direct democracy. We can we can do it at the local level too. We can do it at the states. I wrote some stuff saying, you know what? We did all this stuff during COVID, and all these policies came down, and people got very upset. Some wanted more restricted policies. Some wanted less. And I said, you know, why didn't we, why don't we just call for some votes on some of these things in our cities? If there's a question about whether we want to reopen the schools or not, why don't we take a vote? Why, why does it have to be uh, an unelected health officer in a health department making a super important decision like that instead of the voters? So, so I think that once people get the mindset that it's our society and we have to live with the consequences of these important decisions, so we ought to be participating in them. I think once it becomes instinctive, then, then we'll start to vote on more things. And I think we'll get better decisions and, and, and it'll be happier. But I think at least in this country, there's a, and not just us, but maybe in a lot of other countries other than Switzerland, people naturally think, well, you know, elected officials or bureaucrats make decisions. We, we only periodically get to have a say in these things. But I, there's no reason that has to be the case. And as you write also in the book, I think it's a, it's a great way of settling issues. You know, you can have huge discussions around legislation or any proposal and then once the vote is through there is actually also at least in switzerland there is really an acceptance of of that decisions it doesn't mean that the topic comes up again and that you can you know change previous decisions and i think that's also an important element of direct democracy that if the people have taken a certain decision at some point there should be the possibility to change or amend that decision at the at the later point and i think like the design, the design is really important. This is something that I think is also not well appreciated, but direct democracy has this settling feature to it that decisions made by, by non-elected officials, which is what most of our things don't have. And it, it really is harmful to your society if you argue about an issue over and over and over without coming to a conclusion. It's important to get the issue right, but sometimes it's just as important just to get some closure on the issue and, and move on. And I've I've written about abortion in, in this country, and I think it's an issue that in some respects, not this is a bit overdramatic, but in some respects has tore apart a lot of our, our politics because it became such a polarizing issue. And that was because it was a decision made by unelected judges, in my opinion. And so it was never really viewed as final or as as legitimate by the losers. So they always were thinking, well, this isn't really what the, the people want. It's these unelected guys. If we could get control of them, we could switch it back. You know, I think the United States in some ways is very unique in that we, we fought so stridently over this issue for, for 50 years. In, in every other democracy, they had arguments, they took votes, the majority ruled, and they moved on. And that seems like a healthy way to do it. We did it in a very un unhealthy way. So let's take Brexit, because that's another one you, you mentioned. Um, there's problems with the way they did it, in my opinion. But I think at least it settled the issue. Every generation gets to make its own way. So it'll come back around in 20 years. The next generation can decide what they want to do. But at least it took it off their, off their radar so they can move on to think about some other things. So that's a healthy aspect of it. And the reason it settles is because the losers, if the majority votes against you, the losers tend to say, yeah, that's not what I wanted, but that's the rules of the game. And I lost. And so let me try to win something else, which they don't feel if it's coming out of some other process. So I think Brexit, you know, again, it, it was obviously 
a long, you know, torturous episode for, for the UK for that episode. But I think the, the one virtue is it, it did, in some sense, settle the issue for now. They can move on. But I think also, well, the two points, I think, that were problematic with the Brexit referendum. One was that it was top-down initiated, so it was, like, used as a political tool and almost, like, as a political strategy for the conservatives and obviously Cameron did want to rule out this discussion and also the pressure he felt from 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 the right but then it backfired and then the other thing what what was missing there was that there was only this initial decision but there could have been the subsequent decisions taken by the people also in terms of how should uh, Brexit actually uh, look like. I think that Cameron had the option it was proposed to him to take two votes and one was going to be on the concept and then one was going to be back on the the actual details. And apparently he declined that because he thought he was going to win on the first round, as, as we all know, and he didn't want to give, give people a second bite. But they put the British public in a really awkward position that you're voting on something and you don't know what it actually is. You're, you're voting on a concept. And as we know, the details make all the difference in how you exit. And so they ask people to vote on something. And so the people don't exactly know what they voted on. And then the people that are charged to implement it don't actually know what the people wanted because they didn't present real options to people. So I think that was a problematic way. I would also say for for issues like that of significant importance where you're going to pivot off the status quo, I think there's an argument for putting a higher threshold than, say, 51 percent, maybe, say, 55 or 60, because I think there's a virtue to stability. It's bad for people living in the world to have policies change all the time. I think that you want to build in a little bit of a bias for the status quo. So I think saying if we're going to do something of that importance, we need 55 percent. I'm just I'm, I'm just picking a number. But the point is the point is a supermajority. I think that's much safer because one of the problems, of course, comes out with Brexit with 51.5 percent. Yes. The losers still say, well, yeah, just because of quirks in the rain or this or that, it would have gone the other way. So it's not clear. If it was 55, nobody would have those arguments and it would be much easier for people to move on too. And I think this design, uh, it really matters. And you also, in the book, you actually make suggestions of how direct democracy could be designed also at the national level in the US. So in general, do you think from a, from an academic point of view, do you think there is enough design thinking or, or research on, on direct democracy? And also from my point of view, currently there is so much discussion about deliberative democracy, citizens' assemblies, mini publics, uh, which I think can be a great complement to also the institutions that we have. But I almost feel like that direct democracy has fallen back in terms of, of research and design thinking? In terms of design, I actually think we know a ton about the details. I think if you look at states like California or cities, we could dig into Switzerland. I mean, there's all kinds of things that people have done there. People have been iterating on this process for, you know, Switzerland, what, 170 years or something like that. The U.S. is is a long time, too. So I think we know a lot about how to do this right. I think the bigger question is not how to perfect it, but how to get it in places that don't have it. Because there's a lot of places, as as I've already said, at the national level, we don't have it. Many states in the U.S. don't have it. Many countries don't have it, where I think they might be better off having it. Uh, Having initiative rights would be a good thing. So so I don't think we're, from a scholarly point of view, we're flying blind in terms of actually how to do this. We just don't have it in as many places. And you alluded earlier to the fact that there's quite a few academics who don't like it. 
And as we know from surveys, the general public overwhelmingly likes this, that 30% that don't like it, I conjecture, are almost all elites. Um, elites never like it. Uh, elites, sometimes I worry if they even like democracy in general, because they just fundamentally don't trust the people. Yeah, good point. They think yeah. the people are, are moody and emotional and given to terrible passions. They fundamentally don't trust the people, but they, they still want to say they believe in democracy. So I find them often torn up over those two things because you can't have it both ways. Either you trust the people and, you know, they're capable of choosing leaders and amending constitutions or, or they're not. I don't think you can, you can do it both ways. The other thing you mentioned, which is really interesting where we do need more research is, this isn't exactly what you said, but I, I think it's, a, it, it's very much the thrust of what you said, is what is technology? going to do to democracy, in particular direct democracy, because technology is making it possible for people to sit in their homes or, or with their phones and vote on issues very often. And we know that technology has changed, transformed, is not a, you know, is not, is not an exaggeration, many aspects of our lives in the last 20 years. It stands to reason it is going to transform the way we do our, our governments in a very dramatic way that I don't think we can see yet what that is. But I believe we will, for sure, we will be voting online. We will be voting through our phones at some point. We, we will be doing stuff like that. I think the notion that we'll be on an ongoing basis, you know, every day we'll be voting on some issue or something, I, that, that will never happen and that would never be a good idea, in my opinion. People don't want to be, people don't want that much involvement with, with politics. But we do have the opportunity to have people do more than they're doing right now. And um, I, I'm often approached by people who are entrepreneurs trying to think up ideas. They're trying to develop apps. They're trying to do things. And this blurs very much into the participatory and the deliberative people because they're all kind of in the same crowd, kind of thinking creatively, where does democracy go? What's the next thing? So I think that's an area where we don't have much research yet. I agree with the technology there come many more opportunities, possibilities. On the other side, also, I, I see, for example, in Switzerland, that trust, again, trust is very important when it comes to technology. So even though it would be possible to hold all, you know, like direct democratic decisions by now electronically, the people and also the politicians, they are very careful in proposing to change to electronic uh, solutions because If trust is lost, then a lot more would be lost than direct democracy. This also brings back the question of the balance between representative democracy and, and direct democracy. As you say, people probably don't want to vote like every day on, on issues. And also, I think that the deliberative part is important that people actually have time and the media has time and politicians have time to discuss issues and to present the arguments and technology could also bring the danger that we actually are overwhelmed with with decisions and yeah therefore again i think the design is 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 really really crucial yeah what you said is a really is a really funny thing because we thought that the uh the internet and all this stuff would make it so easy for us to to get informed and actually we're now flooded with information so we don't know what to we, we don't know how to process it because we have so much right we we have so much information the, our problem is that we know how we find the good stuff amongst all, all amongst all the bad out there so yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah so again for you the way forward or where do you see the the next steps in in the development of, of direct democracy well i think the more that people use it and try it I, i i think the better as far as if we just take the u.s since that's what i've, I've done the most writing about i i certainly think if we we could have a national vote once or twice i think that would be a, a huge a huge step forward an advisory vote 
would, would, would be a huge step forward. And that's eminently doable. And it's not, there was a congressman who was later the majority leader who actually every year he would introduce, introduce a bill to that effect, someone named Dick Gephardt. And he proposed that every, there would be a commission and every three years it would pick, I think, three issues that would go to the voters for an advisory vote. Now, he never got any traction on, on this issue, um, but he was a very serious person. And so you could well imagine something like that. Let's have a citizen petition on a citizen panel or maybe put some politicians on there or some eminent. doesn't matter who it is and from my point of view. Just put some eminent people that the voters respect and have them come up with three issues and ask the voters what they think of these issues. And then once the voters actually speak, let's see how the political system reacts. It's kind of like taking a poll. And people sometimes say, well, why do we need to do this? We can we can do opinion polls. And there's a real difference because on an opinion poll, somebody's calling people up and asking them about something that they may or may, may not have yet thought much about or formed an opinion on. The difference is if you're voting, before the time you vote, you're exposed to an intense campaign. So if we were to have a vote in the U.S., there would be a very intense campaign. Voters would get bombarded and they would get to hear both sides of the argument. They haven't really thought about some of these issues sometimes. And if they've heard, they've maybe only heard one side of their argument, their tribe's argument. So they would be bombarded by these things and they would actually reflect on it. And they would cast, I suspect, a very different vote than you would get in a poll. Also, because when it's a poll, sometimes you just want to, you're, you're kind of shouting, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're just venting a little bit. But if people thought, oh, these guys might listen to it, to what I say here, they might tack in a little bit, I suspect, as, as well. So I think actually voting is very different than an opinion poll. And, you know, we know this kind of another way we know this is that if you look at ballot propositions, if you look at the first poll anybody takes on an issue and you look at the final election vote, it's often very different. Some things can be wildly popular when you ask, when you poll it and then you, you let a campaign run and you have people vote and they totally switch. They go from massive support to massive no, for example. So that's yet another example why, why voting is, is really different than polling. The voting brings this reflection about the topic and, and people informing themselves. It's actually, I mean, in Switzerland, that's, that's I think, true. You always could think about, you know, how, how you want to inform people more. But actually thinking about a topic also is politically is, I think, very interesting. So yeah, thanks a lot for for sharing your insights and and your opinions. And I will definitely link to your to your work, to your research, and also to the book. But besides that, do you have any articles or other books that you you'd recommend on on the topic? I'm sort of a huge believer in reading about history because I think that we get bombarded with current stuff and we don't really realize the context of what we're doing. And we tend to magnify as we think about what's, what's happening and how to fix it. We focus, I think, too much on things that happened in the last three or four years. It's very hard to see the sweep of what's really happening around us. And, and it really matters because how we think about things, you know, if you think that the stress in American democracy right now is caused by Donald Trump, then the solution is simple. Get, get Trump out of the picture and we go back to this, this imaginary happy land beforehand. But if you think it has deeper roots, you think about it very differently. So I'm a big believer in history. Um, I can mention many, many things, but I think um, Kisar's book on the right to vote is a great just history of the United States and shows how much evolution we have. Um, Sean Willens, a history at Princeton, wrote a great book called The Rise of Democracy. The Rise, I think it's The Rise of American Democracy. You know, it's not light reading. It's not going to be it's not going to be for everyone. But if you want to read kind of 
how much it's changed in the battles that were fought and kind of how those were done. I think that's great. I guess what I what I don't recommend this maybe I can do you do more negative. Um, there's a class of books out there that I'm not going to name that are big think about democracy, sort of how to save or democracy's dying or 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 these sort of things. These things I think would be very tempting for people to read because it sounds so it's so sexy and it's and they're going to tell you this big picture thing. Um, when I look through those, I, I guess I I find a lot of them not actually very well grounded in in the science of things and in the history of things. They're they're very much reactive in the, in a short run. So I guess I, I would I would not recommend those. I would say if people have time, I would say try to go back to some some core stuff because I, I think you'll get more 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 deeper lessons from from reading some history. Yeah, I I agree, and I think we are on the same page with regard to to some other some other books, and I think also uh, I you know reading about the history of democratic institutions in Switzerland, for example, gave me so many insights and 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 so much um, knowledge. So I think that's that's a very good recommendation. And yeah, I'll I'll link to these other resources. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot, John, for for taking the time to to be a guest on the Rules of the Game podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me on. It's it's it's, it's really fun to talk about these topics. These are important things and they're really interesting. So great, glad you're doing this. And to everyone, I recommend the book, uh, Let the People Rule. I think it's it's a great overview of, of direct democracy and uh, how we, we could uh, make it work. Okay, very good. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode. I really appreciate you've taken the time. If you enjoyed it and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. It really helps my message to get heard. If you have suggestions for future episodes or feedback on the podcast, don't hesitate to contact me by email at stefan.kybertz.com at gmail.com. I'll put my email address in the show notes. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Twitter at Skybirds, that's S-K-Y-B-U-R-Z, and on LinkedIn. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.